This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Diagnosed with autism at the age of eight, Camilla Pang struggled to understand the world around her. Desperate for a solution, she asked her mother if there was an instruction manual for humans that she could consult. With no blueprint to life, Pang began to create her own, using the language she understands best, science. That lifelong project eventually resulted in her book, An Outsider's Guide to Humans. Dr. Camilla Pang will join me later in the show. First, it was October the 3rd, 1995. The shocking outcome of the O.J. Simpson trial leaves a nation divided. Then, July 5, 2011, Casey Anthony walks free despite being convicted by millions on cable news and social media. There are times when something as supposedly simple as a just verdict rises to the level of a cultural touchstone. Often these moments hinge on logic that seems flawed and inexplicable. Until now, lead trial consultant Richard Gabriel explains in his book, Acquittal, how some of the most controversial verdicts in recent times came to be. Richard Gabriel, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to start off by telling you I read an awful lot. Um, this book, from the beginning to the end, I, I was it was a ta- page turner. I, I just kept it. was... It read, some of it reads like fiction. Unfortunately, in some respects, it's, it's all true. And you, you go through some of these cases that you've been involved with. And what I want to start with is that you are a trial consultant. I am completely ignorant about what a trial consultant is. Can you explain? Yes, a trial consultant is, as I would say it, almost a translator. Um, I'm you know, a, a trial consultant is someone who understands both the psychology and the communication of a courtroom dynamics. We have this very pristine view of the courtroom as being sort of this uh, very objective, very almost laboratory uh, place where evidence gets presented almost in a vacuum. And in fact, it's about human decision making and human judgment. And so with my background, I spend a lot of time just understanding the psychology of how jurors make decisions and uh, and how the cases get presented that affect those decisions. A trial consultant uh, has a background in psychology or communication, um, and obviously we spend time uh, conducting research on cases for our clients. We do focus groups or mock trials or surveys. We can help them in selecting jurors actually in court. We help them in preparing witnesses sometimes and in helping them to be the best advocates and to most clearly present their cases in court to hopefully get the best listening from their audience. Now, you write about the O.J. Simpson case, Heidi Fleiss, Whitewater, Enron, Broadband Trial, Phil Spector, and Casey Anthony. And one of the things that you, and I started off with the, with the introduction, was, was about the change, the big change. And I'm just going to read a little, a little passage uh, from your book, and it's, it goes like this. Uh, armchair justice is not new. Celebrity justice is not new. But on a stretch of the I-405 freeway on a sunny June afternoon in 1994, Pandora's box was opened 
and the chaotic clash of news media, journalism and advertising dollars, public craving and criminal investigations and prosecutions, celebrity culture and constitutional protections was unleashed on our unwitting justice system. And we are still trying to close the box. I love that passage. Give me a little bit more about that. Well, although celebrity justice has been around for many years, and the trials of Fatty Arbuckle and the Rosenberg uh, trials and Sacco and Vanzetti and the Scopes Monkey trial, we have a long history of of the press covering these notorious cases. But in O.J. Simpson, we had, I almost call it the first reality television show. Yeah. Uh, because with O.J.'s sports history and his movie career, you have this tremendous celebrity that, in the public image of O.J. Simpson, that clashed so significantly with this horror of this crime. Mm-hmm. And people who had were riveted just by the details of this and couldn't get enough. And so you had this news media that also, with the advent of CNN and 24-hour news cycle, you had the availability of the media that could then cover this thing uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And as a result, you had this onslaught of media, and they almost became another party in the courtroom. And so it was a, a, a tremendous challenge uh, and a, a kind of a carnival that we all had to struggle with to try and and actually present a legal case in this environment. Now, before the trial took place, what triggered this, and you mentioned, we mentioned this at the top, was the Bronco chase. I've always been fascinated by this, and, I, and I'm sure everybody else is, is. Do we know what his intentions were? Do we know where he was going? What was that about? We don't, I think one of the things that fascinated us, which caused, at the time, 95 to 100 million people to watch this thing for five hours, yeah. um, is that we didn't know. I was sitting, actually, in Larry King's studio at the time. A colleague of mine, Joel Demetrius, was being interviewed. And then the Bronco chase started, yeah. and we didn't know at the time we heard that there was uh, this disguise in it and that he had money and a passport. So we're like, oh, my, you know, a lot of people thought, well, he's running, He's, yeah. uh, which is obviously for a prosecutor, consciousness of guilt. And yet he had a gun to his head and, and there was desperation. So here was the most famous running back of all time running. And we didn't know if he was running toward his death or running to get away from his guilt. And I think that's what riveted us uh, for so long, and it continued to compel us throughout the duration of that trial. I have so many questions for you. Richard Gabriel is my guest. His book is called Acquittal, and the uh, the subtitle is An Insider Reveals the Stories and Strategies Behind Today's Most Infamous Verdicts. You met with Simpson directly after the verdict. Can you talk about that? It was amazing. I just, I felt like to, you spend so much time in these cases that you want your own closure on it. And when the verdict came down and the uproar uh, over it, and, you know, I met with the team and we had a dinner 
and we sort of were all sitting there a little stunned and exhausted and at the same time ex- gratified by you know the outcome and i i wanted to go over and see him and so we i went over uh to this to his house in Brentwood and it was it was crazy over there there mm. were people roaming roaming the streets and and people drinking and almost partying outside and <clears throat> people shouting at the house and outraged and i got let in by security and and saw him and it was very brief um he was exhausted and and his characteristic he was obviously very gratified to be home um and but you know in dealing over the years with defendants after these cases they've been in jail they don't even know how to adjust to a new yeah. lifestyle and i could see him sort of sitting there feeling like what do i do now mm. uh, i think the full knowledge of his situation and that he would never ever be uh, the same man that he was, uh, was beginning to dawn on him. And then a year later, I think it was approximately a year later, he was found guilty in the civil trial. I, I, I don't really want to put you on the spot, and I'm sure other people have asked you this question, but in a lot of the cases that you've worked on, do you go into them having a, a predetermined idea that there is guilt or innocence? I don't, and it's important for me to keep that objectivity when I'm representing best friend and my client, mm. uh, one of the things I describe in the book is that to a certain extent, I have to wear a lot of different hats. Yeah. And I spend time trying to look at it through the jury's eyes. I also spend time telling my clients, here, I'm going to look at it through the prosecutor's eyes. So I need to let you know how the prosecutor is going to try and convict you. And then obviously I, I want to wear the advocate's hat also. So I try to look at it from different angles to try and give some perspective on how these different things might affect the outcome. But in terms of a personal view, I try and stay away from it. But I always try and check in because I obviously want to understand how a jury can convict my client and how they might view the evidence. Because uh, without that knowledge, you can't be the best advocate for your client. Right. A very good answer. Richard Gabriel is our guest. The book is titled Acquittal, and he's been a trial consultant in some, uh, well, amazing cases, celebrity cases. One of the cases that you were involved with, and another one which in your book is so fascinating to read about, Phil Spector, Philip Spector. And in the book you said, yet there are nagging details that confound the obvious the coroner initially concludes that the manner of death was accidental. Seven months and 19 days later, he changes that conclusion to homicide. The prosecutor's final charge, finally charged Spectre with Lana Clarkson's death, but not for nine months and 17 days. It's extraordinary. It's, it's one of the things that... You know, again, in a lot of these cases, I see them sometimes as these mysteries. And like I think most of the public out there, you hear the details originally, and you hear, well, it's so obvious. It seems that he did it. And then when you started digging in, and when when I started talking to the attorneys, and they started telling me some of these things, you start questioning, and you start 
investigating yourself because ultimately that's what a jury does. And you start looking at, wait a minute, why would a coroner have have ruled this accidental initially? What did they see initially that did this? And then why did they change their opinion on this? And I think that's that's what fascinated me with that case is that there was this sort of surface explanation, which initially people just went, well, of course, you know, it, you had an eyewitness who yeah. hears him say something about killing her. Uh, and uh, you have all these women that have had guns pulled on them before. And yet there's all this forensic evidence, which points to the fact that she's holding the gun. And so how do you reconcile those two realities, that becomes the challenge. And this is something that you point out in the book so succinctly, and I want to get to that in just a minute. But my next question is going to be about um, rehabilitating the, uh, the your client's image. I'm going to ask that question right after this. Thank you for listening to Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. To learn more about our program, our guest, and the music we feature, Go to lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. My guest is the author of a new book, Acquittal. An insider reveals the stories and strategies behind today's most infamous verdicts. Richard Gabriel is our guest. Richard, you talk about rehabilitating your client's image. For instance, you say the temptation for a celebrity, whether it's O.J. Simpson, Michael Jackson, Martha Stewart, or Philip Spector, is to rehabilitate their image. To do this, the client wants the attorney to reinstate his or her credibility, not only by denying culpability for the alleged crime, but also be reminding, by reminding the press and the public of the great things he or she has done. That is, that is something which I think we as a public don't really understand just how, how important that is for your, for your client. Can you talk on that? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword uh, in, a, in a criminal case because on one hand, part of their identity, part of their public image has to do with the positive things that the public remembers them for and Phil Spector's case, it was the music. In O.J. Simpson's case, it was his famous careers are running back and even some of the, the films that he was in. Um, and so there's a natural inclination for them to say, I want people to know who I really am. And it's actually a natural instinct for any defendant to want to say, I'm a good person. I want the jury to know that. But the problem in these cases is that with a celebrity, it tends to reinforce their power and their um, and and when you reinforce a celebrity's power and their sort of uh, their public knowledge, they sometimes um, what ends up happening is that it creates a higher standard of proof. And the problem for O.J. Simpson and a Phil Spector is that their image is already. Uh, sort of tarnished by the accusation. So sometimes your instinct to do it, you're sort of going against the grain and you're swimming upstream and sometimes reinforcing the great power and the great uh, leverage that that celebrity has. And that becomes counterintuitive. And so 
you're struggling with your clients because they want to rehabilitate. On the one hand, you don't want the jury to focus on them. You want the jury to focus on the prosecution's case and the holes and the lack of credibility so that you get the jury to arrive at a reasonable doubt. I love the way you explained that. And I'm going to follow on with that with what about somebody like Casey Anthony that wasn't a celebrity, but by the mere facts of the trial, I, I guess you could say she's become infamous. Can you talk about Casey Anthony? Yes, that was a uh, that was one of the most challenging cases I've ever worked on uh, because even more than the OJ case, the visceral emotional response that people had to a mother's you know alleged murder of her child mm-hmm. or at least her not knowing where her child was for thirty days right. was so palpable, so so emotional that there was a hue and cry for her conviction from the very beginning. And it continued through more than two and a half years of a very intense press coverage. So she became a pariah. And the the challenge in this case was to almost harness that negative publicity. One of the most revealing things happened when we conducted a focus group in Orlando uh, prior to the trial, and we sat down with a group of of jurors who had seen a ton about the case, and they, I asked them, I said, "Well, what do you think?" And they went, "Oh, well, of course she's guilty. Um, you know, she did these horrible things." And I said, "Okay, well, I understand that." And I took them through the evidence, what had been publicly available to them, and a fascinating thing happened. Um, as I went through the evidence, and I presented mostly the prosecution's evidence, and you know, I raised some questions along the way. At the very end, I said to them, I've finished presenting all the evidence at this point who would convict Casey Anthony of first-degree murder, and mm. only three hands got raised. Ah, yeah. And you could see CBS was filming this because they, uh, we were... They graciously paid for the focus group, not okay. me, but the focus group, right. because we we didn't have money to pay for it. So everybody was stunned. I was stunned. And they said, well, wait, you told me at the beginning of the session that you thought she was guilty. Ah, what happened? Yes, yes, yes. And they said, something doesn't add up. Yes. And the, and the more the jurors got into it, the more they questioned some of the state's what we felt was very questionable right. uh, forensic evidence in the case. And there was this conundrum. They said, look, you know, you're charging her with a death penalty, first-degree murder, intentionally murdering her child, saying that somehow you wanted to be free and wanted to be free of the of the anchor of this child. Mm-hmm. And yet she had built-in babysitters because she lived at home with her parents right. who loved the child. And every witness... For the prosecution who got up on the stand and testified about Casey, said how much she loved her child. Right. And so you have these conflicting portraits. Wait a minute. And so for jurors, they did, it didn't add up. And I said to them, why? What do you think happened here? And they said they thought that it was an accident. Mm. That because of this very bizarre and unusual family dynamic. Yes. She couldn't admit to herself that 
she had that her child had drowned. Right. Yes. In the backyard pool. Yes. And and they said they got into the psychology of the family and they by themselves did their own sort of investigation and found that the pieces didn't add up. I think there's a, there's a, you explained it so well, Richard. Richard Gabriel is my guest. The book is called Acquittal. You explained that so well about the Casey Anthony case. And there's a couple of sort of things I want to add on to that. And, and that is, there seemed to be a feeling because she was a mother, she was this, she was painted as this young lady that would like to party, etc., etc. But so there was this urgency to, to, to point fingers and put the blame. At the same time, as you're just talking about the focus group, it does seem to me, and I think to a lot of people that followed the trial, that there were things that were going on, specifically the dynamics in the family, things that we that we don't know. Do you think some of those things that we don't know did not get aired in the courtroom? I think that they didn't get aired in the courtroom, but they got aired in a way that always happens in trials, which is that you can't stop a juror's brain. And when they sit there over six weeks of a trial, and you have George Anthony on the stand for a long period of time, and you have things that come up, you know, jurors question, they go, wait a minute, here's a father who ostensibly loves his daughter, yet seemingly is implicating her. Yes. In her in the, in his granddaughter's murder, why is that? Why did he take sleeping pills and try and kill himself? When what's that dynamic about? When why would he do something like that? That seems a bit strange. Why would her brother get on the stand and weep and talk about feeling rejected and and left out when out of Casey's birth of Kaylee? That seems a bit odd. So there's this, even though there wasn't a lot of overt evidence about that, there was enough evidence. Why would the mother get up there and testify that she did the computer searches mm-hmm. on chloroform and the prosecution try and impeach her on the, So there's all these things that led the jurors to create their own portrait of this almost gothic family yeah. that, that, sort of wasn't was and wasn't in evidence. You know, you says you use the word there, which I love, gothic, because really, in, in, in true sense, this could have been a gothic novel if it wasn't uh, horribly real. My guest is the author of Acquittal, an insider reveals the stories and strategies behind today's most infamous verdicts. Richard Gabriel is with us. I, I find it fascinating. I'm always interested in where people come from and how people get to do what they do. Can you talk just briefly about that? Well, a lot of people say I was sort of predestined to do the work I'm doing because my mother is a judge and my father is a psychologist. And although each of them in their own respects wanted me to go into post-psychology and law, I guess I decided on a middle ground, which incorporated both. I grew up hearing about the mother of my mother's cases and how she puzzled over how to make the right decision on sentencing and on, on uh, you know, the, what's the law to apply to different cases. Mm-hmm. And I heard my father talk about the struggles and the plights of people who are struggling with divorces and uh, deaths in the family and emotional problems. And so 
I think to a certain extent, uh, when I finally found this avenue <laughs> in which to uh, look at court cases and say, look, you know, jurors are people, judges are people. There's a lot about the psychology of trials that hasn't been explored. I found a natural niche for myself. It's a great story. It's a great book. Um, one last question for you, Richard. Richard Gabriel is my guest. The book is called Acquittal. You write about the most infamous verdicts. For you, what is the most infamous verdict above all? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, the most infamous verdict is the one. I mean, to a certain extent, I almost have to say Casey Anthony, although. Mm. 140 million people watched the O.J. verdict, yeah. uh, and it became sort of a seminal event. The, the Casey Anthony verdict, to me, almost was almost more infamous, partly because it was so unexpected for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people thought that you know the jury in the O.J. Simpson case may have acquitted him, but I think that with we had the deck so stacked against us in a death penalty case with Casey Anthony. And in Florida, you only need six of the, or seven of the 12 jurors to put a person on death row. Mm -hmm. And so we just felt that that case was improbable given the vehemence uh, of the thing. So I, I have to say that of all of them, probably Casey, it's a close one, but I think between Casey and, and, uh, OJ, almost Casey, uh, edges out as the most most infamous, the most notorious. You've been a fascinating guest. The book is an incredible read, uh, well done. It's it's very well written. Once again, my guest, Richard Gabriel, the book is called Acquittal. An insider reveals the stories, strategies behind today's most infamous verdicts. Richard Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Richard, that was great. I really appreciate it. You were a, a terrific guest. And, and once again, I've got to tell you, I really love the book. And I, oh, uh, I, I really <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, uh, I was a, it's been a compilation of many years of my life, and I just kind of felt it pouring out. So I'm yeah, gratified. I, 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 sort of, I sort of got – that's why I touched on your, your background a little bit, because I got the feeling that it was something that you, you felt like you had inside of you that you wanted to get out. So it, 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 it comes across like that. It doesn't come across – some of these kind of books do come across kind of salacious and uh, – Sort of capitalizing on uh, what people have been. In. You, you explain the explain the whole process very very well. I like the way you've put it together. It's a great read. Well, I, I again I appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. I got to talk about things that I I sometimes in this book don't get to talk about. So I appreciate the the, the depth of your interview. Still to come in the program, a conversation you will be moved by. You and I are fortunate to be able to hear the words and thoughts of a remarkable woman, Dr. Camilla Pang. She will talk about her book, An Outsider's Guide to Humans. What science taught me about what we do and who we are. Right after this. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. Let us know what you think of our show. Send your comments to info 
lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. My guest is Camilla Pang, PhD. Her book is called An Outsider's Guide to Humans, What Science Taught Me About What We Do and Who We Are. Camilla Pang, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Hello, thank you for having me on here. It's great to be here. I have to be very, very honest with you. I expected your book to be somewhat stuffy and full of big words but it's not. It's incredibly readable and better still, it's humorous. It's, it's fun. It's a fun read. Oh, I'm really glad that you say that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a terrific, it it's a terrific book about some very serious topics. So I want to get into that. But before we go any further, could you just read for us a, a, just a passage from your book and then we'll come back and we'll start talking about it. Yes. It was five years into my life on Earth that I started to think I'd landed in the wrong place. I must have missed the stop. I felt like a stranger within my own species, someone who understood the words but couldn't speak the language, who shared an appearance with fellow humans, but none of the essential characteristics. In our garden at home, I would sit in a multicoloured tent tilted sideways, my spaceship, with an atlas laid out in front of me, wondering what it would take to blast off back to my home planet. And when that didn't work, I turned to one of the few people who maybe did understand me. Mum, is there an instruction manual for humans? She looked at me blankly. You know, a guidebook, something that explains why people behave the way they do. I can't be certain. Picking up on facial expressions was not, is not, and never has been my forte. But in that moment, I think I saw my mother's heartbreak. No, Millie. It didn't make sense. There were books on almost everything else in the universe, but none that could tell me how to be. None that could prepare me for the world. None that could teach me to place a comforting arm around the shoulder of one in distress to laugh when others laughed, to cry when others cried. I knew I must have been put on this planet for a reason, and as the years passed and my awareness of my conditions developed and my interest in science grew, I realised it was this. I would write the manual that I had always needed, one that explained humans to others like me who didn't understand, and which would help those who thought they understood to see things differently. The Outsider's Guide to Life, this book. It didn't always seem obvious or achievable. I'm someone who was reading Dr. Zeus while revising for my A-levels. Reading fiction actually makes me afraid. But what I lack in almost everything else, I make up for with the distinctiveness of how my brain works and my overwhelming love for science. Let me explain. The reason I never felt normal is because I'm not. I have ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and GAD, Generalized Anxiety Disorder. 
Together, these might combine to make life as a human impossible. It's often felt that way. Having autism can be like playing a computer game without the console, cooking a meal without pans or utensils, or playing music without the notes. People with ASD have a harder time processing and understanding events on an everyday scale. Often, we have no filter in what we see or say, get easily overwhelmed, and can display idiosyncratic behaviours that mean our talents can be overlooked and ignored. I'm someone who will tap the table in front of me a lot, make weird squeaking noises, and twitch constantly, nervous ticks assailing me at random. I'll say the wrong things at the wrong time, laugh at the sad bits of films, and ask constant questions through the important parts. And I'm never far away from a total meltdown. To get an impression of how my mind works, think of the Wimbledon tennis final. The ball, my mental state, is being rallied back and forth, faster and faster. It's bouncing up and down, side to side, constantly in motion. Then, all of a sudden, there's a change. A player slips, makes an error, or outwits their opponent. The ball spins out of control. A meltdown begins. Living like this is frustrating, but also completely liberating. Being out of place also means you are in your own world, one where you are free to make the rules. What's more, over time I have come to realize that my curious cocktail of neurodiversity is also a blessing, one that has been my superpower in life, equipping me with the mental tools for fast, efficient, and thorough analysis of problems. ASD means I see the world differently, and without preconceptions. While、well, anxiety and ADHD allow me to process information at rapid speed, as I pogo between boredom and intense concentration, and mentally envisage every possible outcome of each situation I find myself in. My neurodiversity created so many questions about what it meant to be human, but it also gave me the power to answer them. That was Camilla Pang reading from her book *An Outsider's Guide to Humans: What Science Taught Me About What We Do and Who We Are*. Camilla, you're a great reader as well as a great writer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed listening to you. I've got to get your audio book and and re re reread or re listen to your book if you like. Hearing somebody speak their own words is. That's an interesting aspect of of writing, isn't it? Or doing what you do. How did you How did you feel about that? It felt a bit weird at first, but I think once you get used to it, because the audio book when you record it, it's like I don't know you're in there for four days, you know, you know, nine to five or nine to six straight, and you get you get used to it. It's quite peaceful after a while. It's quite quiet. Yeah. Yes. Now, I I don't want to sort of make a big point about this, but you are a very very talented. Person who is doing awful lot in your life, and I want to get into that in a moment. But here you are with this book. Here am I talking about it, and you've got all these people talking to you about your book and about what you do. I'm just wondering for you, just just how how is this? How are you taking this? How are you handling it all? Oh, thank you so much. It's so kind of you. Um, it's been okay. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I think I think lockdown has has kind of helped with the intensity of it.、Um, 
I'm really happy that people have connected to it, but um, yeah, it, it, it does feel really nice. I've got no expectations of how it should feel. And so, um, yeah, it'll get more, more real the more I see people, I'm sure. Yes. Now <laughs> let's get in. Yeah, let's get into the book a little bit. You were diagnosed being on the spectrum of what? Eight, I believe, if I've got it right. But you you thought of yourself as being different and you say at the age of four. Can you tell me about that? And then I've got a follow-up question. Okay, cool. Um, so yes, yeah, so when I was four, it was a constant dysrhythmia with me and my peers and my family, as much as I loved them, I didn't really feel like I connected with them the same. Over time, I thought this isn't, this isn't right. Why, why, why am I not fitting in? And so then I knew something was up. Yes. Now that, that feeling different, the degrees of feeling different, is it, is it possible, do you think, that some people never get diagnosed? Yeah, no. no. Yeah, for example, a lot of people don't really understand what they find difficult, especially with someone with autism, because you sometimes you just don't know what you need. You feel like you're always behind and you're conscious of it. You, like, you're trying to play catch up with the most simplest of things that everyone else finds easy. And that's one of the things where especially in women, it presents differently. And that's why a lot of people, especially women, don't get diagnosed with autism until um, later. And also um, they get diagnosed with something else like anxiety disorder. And I'm like, if you just looked at the nature of autism in men and women, you'll start to realize that the diagnosis hallmarks are very much outdated, not to mention biased. Yes. Why do you think that is? That's such an important part, Camilla. Why do you think that women don't get diagnosed so early as men do? Mixture of two things. Um, one of them, because um, the the basis of diagnosing someone with autism is very, it's based on male how it presents in males. And um, obviously, if I'm if I got diagnosed now, I would be autistic. I what is that because I like science? Oh yeah, brilliant tick. It's not like that. It's you've got to consider how the autism um, affects the interpretation and process of an individual and how it presents in different genders. But ultimately, women, it's a lot harder to diagnose them generally, not to mention if they have the right, the right hallmarks, because they mask their symptoms. Because the societal expectation of a woman is to be complicit and to be able to ag be agreeable and sociable. So instead of expressing yourself as not those things, you internalize everything. Yes. You know, one thing that struck me in reading your book and just listening to you right now is that the subject of autism seems to be, it, 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 it's not brought to the fore very much. I still think there's a lot of mystery for, for, for most people, which is why I think your book is so incredibly important. And as, as I said right at the beginning, it's a great read. I highly recommend it for everybody to read this, but I, I really think that there is, there's a, such a lot of sort of misnomers about autism. I'd just like to get your take on that. Yes, there is. It's very much, a, a it's not a silent um, condition, but it is in the sense that you, it's silent because when you look at me, I, you, I look normal, but then the expectation of me to behave normal is something else. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and, it presents it's, it's a severity for example it presents very severely in some people and others it's it's different so the nature of autism by nature is is it's quite hard to define yes i was wondering 
before we we started this interview i was wondering for you having written this book and having the condition that you have how how you approach this talking to people because you've got to talk to people like myself over and over again and i'm sure some of the questions become kind of repetitive was that a, a concern to you for, for having having to do this um I don't know. I think it was more of a logistical challenge. Like, am I on the right Zoom link? Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. that's, yeah. that's the main one. Am I on the right Zoom link? Am I on the right phone call? What do I do? It's the steps in between. In terms of like what I say, I prefer Zoom calls because I can see your reaction to what I'm saying. And if I'm yes. flagging on, I can wrap it up. And so it's just talking to someone and you want to make sure that you're concise, but also if they want more detail, then you elaborate. So I've actually got a mechanism of actually speaking right now. And the different, I layer it up like a cake. I give them a foundation, and if that's all they want, then brilliant, stop there. And if they want the second oh. bit, brilliant. We should all do that, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've got a five, well, if you've got a five-minute live interview, then you can't give them the whole cake. You've got to give them the little bit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, there's eleven chapters in your book, and each chapter covers a different area of science. Now, for me as a reader. Read reader as a reader and, and a, a non-science person, um, it was very helpful the way that you've laid your book out. Was that intentional or was it just the way you did it? Um, I think it was a bit of both, really. I think I, I actually structured and ordered the chapters based on a machine learning algorithm, funnily enough, in my head. And for this, it was it was mainly based on making sure the person had a narrative and a guide which they could follow. For example, I wanted to start with, you know, the boxes and trees, because that was very fundamental. I wanted to take them through the scientific processes that have their own nuances so that each chapter it would get a little bit clearer and clearer and clearer. And then at the end would be one in which was about connection and the different chemistries of it. And also etiquette, which is one of the most nuanced things that humans are still trying to fathom. Yes. Something I noticed, and I correct me if I'm if I'm wrong about this, but the edition that came out in the UK is got a different title and a different cover. Am I right about that? Yes, you're very, very right. <laughs> ah, there it is. Yes. Is that a weird thing that it just seems to happen sometimes? I'm not sure why that is. Is, is there any any do you do you have any explanation for that? Not that it's important, I guess. Um no, I think it is it was quite interesting, actually, because I got very attached to the UK name and the UK cover, because that's where it's kind of, that's its home. Um, yeah. But then when America brought it, they did a, a bit of a facelift and a revamp, a rebranding. And I thought, oh, all right, OK, I'm I'm into this. And it was it was difficult initially because I was like, oh, no. But then I realized that it's just a completely different market. I thought, brilliant. It's, it's the same thing, but in a different form, like, you know, sugar coating a pill. It's it people digest things differently and yes. if it makes people connect with it better then brilliant i just well i'm going to tell the people that your publishers that i think the british version <laughs> the british cover and title is is much more appealing but that's my opinion so i'm not going to deter anybody from getting the book it's both both covers are terrific but i like the british one so there so, <laughs> <laughs> so writing the book i i think i read that you that you were 
just it came about from writing notes from just it sort of came about almost organically can you talk to me about that how it all, all came together yeah so I didn't actually realize I was writing it um it was more of a process that I collected throughout my childhood from sticks to leaves to post-its to positions in books that I'd lay out on my floor and I didn't really realize that it was something I was writing until later on where I could write and throughout my life I've journaled and I kind of put the leaves in the books and then before you know it I've got stacks of them <laughs> and then I actually found out that I've actually written the book inadvertently in my PhD thesis and so my supervisor was like um you've written your thesis but you've also written something else in here which is great but it's not part of the thesis and I was like oh no that's awkward so um I I, I searched my sister and she found it really useful and I was like okay maybe I should make it make it into something I had I had such minimal expectations of what it would be like and so for it to become this far it's just incredible yes so that leads me to ask you actually putting the book together I'm I'm just wondering for you for Camilla Pang was it an enjoyable experience or, or what was the emotive feelings that you had or were there you answer that because I'm almost answering it for you I'm Oh, it's fine. It was, so the question was, was it an enjoyable experience? Yes, like, yes, but, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the ability to make sense and express yourself in, a, in, a, in an outlet is always, an, is always an enjoyable process, no matter what you're writing about, if it's something you're struggling with, if it's something you're understanding or being excited about. The process of writing and putting stuff together is something that I find very enjoyable and instinctive. And that is something that I don't take for granted. There are many things in life that I don't have a natural instinct on. And this is one of them. And I was like, brilliant. Yes. You like to draw. Yes, I love to draw. Before I write, I always draw because I need to visualize things and how they are in 3 or 4D or 2, 3, 4D. And then from that, I'm like, okay, this is what I have. This is how it moves. And then from how that picture moves, I then write about it. Yes. This is something which I'm curious about, because I think at some point in your book, you talk about being a scientist or being an academic in that respect and not being artistic. But to me, the, both things seem to sort of meld together, particularly with what you have written. And I, I, I maybe I'm peculiar like this because I... I I grew up being fascinated by art, but I've all, always been fascinated by science at the same time. So I just wanted to know from you, Camilla, is, is that how you see things? Is that is that your sort of perspective on life? Yes, definitely. I, I think first well, first and foremost, to be a scientist, you don't have to be unemotional. If anything, you need that artistic expression to be able to know what you're dealing with. And when it comes to art, that's it's, it's ironically two very different sides of the same coin. They're very much linked. And to be able, both of them are, uh, they ask questions in nature. They poke the different interpretations of what the world is and they find patterns within it to express what is happening, be it through numbers or through pictures. It's both stems from curiosity and the ability to make sense of what's going on around you. This is a difficult question. Oh, go on. <laughs> okay. do, you th do you think that when people know that you are on the spectrum, do they treat you differently? 
than they would if you if you didn't if they didn't know. Um, that's it's an interesting question because I never know whether it's. I can't if if they do treat me differently. I don't notice. <laughs> And if they and if they do, it is it because I'm a woman? Are they being sexist? Are, are they being racist? You don't know why people are treating you differently, whether it's due to your autism or another feature. But ultimately, this is something that I do want to highlight. That, for example, if someone if you're having trouble with something, right, and you want to you're trying to troubleshoot why you're feeling this way and how to solve it, if someone helps you and enables you through the process of doing it as opposed to saying, oh yeah, you need help controlling your emotions because you're autistic. Then I'm like, don't use that as a leverage to invalidate what I'm trying to do because ultimately I'm trying to solve a problem. So I think people can people can use it against you quite a lot, but you need to be careful of that. And I've developed mechanisms in order to detect people that do that explicitly, which is actually easier because it's more obvious. And ones that treat you differently because you're like, oh, let me help you with your emotional management. And I'm like, uh. I don't need emotional management. I'm great, thanks. I just need you to help me with this process and to, to help rationalise why the train isn't scary. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for explaining that. Wow, yeah. you, you you really you really explain things so incredibly well. Another reason why this book is such a great read. A couple of things you said there that I want to touch on. Um, we've talked about the difference between men and women and how they're treated with being on the spectrum. There's something else you just mentioned, and, 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 and it's up to you how far we go with this. But you mentioned racism. Okay. This touches me somewhat because you come from mixed heritage. And my my son is is um, of, of mixed heritage. And so I've had to deal with this um, in a very light kind of way. But I want to I want to share something with you that. I, I think you maybe you can identify with in, in one way or another. My son, when he was about eight years old, came home from school one day and said to me, Dad, hey, I'm chinky. And I said, what? I mean, I just did a double take. And he said, yeah, everybody called me chinky at school today. And I was like, what in the world is going on? I was fuming. I was outraged, of course. But my son thought it was funny. He had not even had any clue in his, in his wildest dreams that he looked different to other kids at school and he just thought it was just a kind of cute thing to say and he was quite proud of it not knowing anything about the connotations with it right. so that's enough of my story i just want to relate that or, or compare that with yours if you like in, in have you ever had to face you mentioned about racism have you ever had to face any sort of that kind of almost schoolyard silliness that, that and, and you've talked about how kids do treat you differently at school yeah and i mean i recently within the last year or so when i went on planes um i i you have people when you sit next to them you, they can they can say that that same word and just use it against you if you make a if you make a move that they don't like for example if you put the cup on the table they're like oh they can make they can be more annoyed than they otherwise would have because <sighs> of that so yes. i think racism and neurodiversity uh, to marginalizations that are used for people to say oh i'm going to give you less of a chance because you're different yes. so yes. this is one of the things that so for example i feel this is it's a complex subject but ultimately if you discriminate based on someone uh, based on the fact that you're not going to give someone a chance versus to them for 
be given them more leeway because they're they're white and that is racism it isn't about what is sometimes obviously it's about what you say but it's more about how you treat them and and how much faith you have in that person yes yes thank you once again for explaining that oh this is so good (laughs) (laughs) camilla talk to me or let my audience know about what you do these days, what you're up to, because you I, you have a full-time job, but you also do part-time work. And I think in the, where we are right now, I think this is such an important part that we should, we should let everybody know about. Yes, so I'm a full-time scientist and I work at a pharmaceutical company in translational bioinformatics, which basically means looking at biological data on the computer and making sense of it and finding patterns in it so that we can make decisions for, you know, drug therapeutics. Um, So that's my full-time job. But I'm also um, a writer in my free time, but I also volunteer a lot, both at um, labs involved in cancer evolution and also at charities that enable people with special educational needs to take up um, STEM. So, yeah, I, I do that. You're a busy person. Yeah, but I love it. You love it. Yes. I love your enthusiasm. So, <laughs> so you've got this book out. And here we are. Here am I raving on about it. It's just a delightful book. It's a wonderful read. So informative. What's next? You say you're writing. What's next for you in the in the the writing arena? Um, Well, I'm always going to be writing. I have plans for book two, but nothing's confirmed as yet. But I'd like to think in the next, I don't know, you know, year or so, I'd have another one that I want to write about, mainly highlighting life beyond the algorithm because you know if it was that simple we'd all be bored and also if it was that simple then my autism probably wouldn't present itself that's how it has so yes yes there was something more to discover yes here's a quick question for you that i I, in in talking to you i I feel like i'd like to ask you your family they must be so incredibly proud of you they really are honestly my parents have been such such um I support doesn't even do it justice they've been imperative to the whole process of enabling me to to be who I am and not saying oh you should be this but being like well this is how she is just make sure she doesn't get arrested or make sure she (laughs) enjoys the process of living and I think those two simple things have enabled me to find my own way and but they've guided me in places where I've been stuck but both my mum my dad and my sister Liddy who lives in America oh okay um, I don't often say this to people that write what what nonfiction books, but this is a nonfiction, but it's a memoir. But it's it, it, it's. I'm just wondering if if anybody's approached you about making a movie because it just seems to me to be so cinematic, and maybe it's because of the way you way you've written this book. Thank you. Um, well, um, there have been quite a few different. Um, TV production companies that we're kind of talking to and brainstorming and um, I'd like to think it would be interesting if it was a movie I'd be up for that and yeah yeah, no I yeah it'd be quite yeah I'd be up for that but this is um you know talking uh, right well the other one of the reasons I asked that question because I've got another follow-up and that is I can't see anybody else playing Camilla Pang except Camilla Pang (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow I mean 
yeah I, I i don't know i think it's definitely gonna be an interesting one if it does go ahead and that's the thing it's to what extent can i trust someone else to to to, to do the process that i've been through and to you know express my story and do it justice so yeah yeah it'd be a very interesting audition process that's for sure. absolutely yes indeed the title of the book is An Outsider's Guide to Humans, What Science Taught Me About What We Do and Who We Are. Um, Camilla Pang is my guest. And one last question for you, Camilla. Do you consider yourself still, after writing this book, an outsider? I think we all are, but that's fine. I'm happy being who I am in my world. And yeah, I'm, yeah yes, I do. And I love it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I like it that you're an outsider and I welcome you to my outside world as well. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you Camilla so much. Pang. Camilla Pang has been my guest, uh, a delightful guest. Once again, I'm going to give you the title because it's really important. An Outsider's Guide to Humans, What Science Taught Me About What We Do and Who We Are. And for my UK listeners, let me see if I can find the title here again. Um, it is explaining humans that's the title in the uk and it's got a different cover camilla pang thank you so very much for joining us at life elsewhere thank you so much it's been really great it's been an honor camilla thank you so much you you're absolutely delightful and um, i really i'm i'm so i'm very sincere about this 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 book actually took my breath away i just thought it was such such an incredible read i really did so thank you, thank so, you much. so much yeah very kind. yeah Have a yeah, and you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to my guests and a large thank you to you for listening. Details about the books we feature on Life Elsewhere are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. Go there to also get info on how to hear this or any of our shows again, either at our affiliate stations or by podcast. My email address comes up in just a moment, so make sure you jot it down and send me your thoughts about Life Elsewhere. Till next time, be well, be safe, and always, it costs nothing, be nice. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C-O. Mm-hmm.